Welcome back to Broken Messenger. Today's episode, we will begin a seven-part series on the seven churches of Revelations. Many people avoid Revelations because it's a scary truth and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Or they think it holds a distant truth and therefore not really relevant for this stage in their life. If you happen to think like either of these two scenarios, you have mistaken. But don't fret. You are not mistaken by pure ignorance. Satan tries very hard to get people to do one of two things. Avoid reading Revelations altogether, or in the other extreme, which is to overanalyze and step out of the zone of truth and breach the ground of speculation, oftentimes being portrayed as truth. So if you have found yourself in the past avoiding Revelations, I hope these next few episodes will provide just enough encouragement and intrigue you to have an interest in digging in more to Revelations. I'll start by saying this. Contrary to popular opinion, Revelations actually covers the past, the present, and the future events still to unfold, not just the future events. In chapter 1 of Revelations, verse 19, Jesus is speaking to John and he says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Because of the events that will take place later, there's a lot that we just have to concede that we don't know what it means or how it will be fulfilled. The past stuff we can see through the fulfillment through Jesus's life. The present, though, that is what I want to look at. The first three chapters of Revelations is directed towards the seven churches. There is varying beliefs in what the seven churches represent. Some think that each church represents a period of time that the church as a whole went through. Some think the churches represent those countries as they were written to them. And I personally feel that, that both of those are narrow. Those are, both of those are ignorant and narrow-minded. We can identify not just our churches but just us as individuals in these seven churches. As we go through each one, we're going to look at the historical information that we have to give it context, but we're also going to look at how these churches are found in today's society and in ourselves. It is my belief that when reading Revelations chapter 1 through 3, it ought to make us take a good, long self-reflection, asking ourselves, where do I stand among these lampstands? Revelation consists of many different metaphors, and some we do not know the meaning of, but some, Jesus tells us the meaning. He says in Revelations 1-20, through 20, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll need this later to fully visualize what the letters are telling us. A scripture out of Job really shows us the imagery of the lampstand. <clears throat> it says, The lamp of the wicked man is snuffed out, the flame of his fire start, stops burning. The light in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. Imagine now, if you will, a lampstand. Picture this in your head. If you've ever been to Cracker Barrel or you were born before 1990, you've seen an oil lamp. If not, uh, well, I guess you can Google it. The stand would hold these lamps. And here we can see that the stand represents the church and the star represents the angel. But the flame of the lamp is represented by the Holy Spirit. And so the wicked man snuffs out the Holy Spirit. One last thing to talk about before we get into the letters. Some believe that the stars of the churches are not angels, but deacons or leaders in the church because the angel of the churches are being convicted. I, however, do not believe this. And here is why. Throughout scripture, we see stars representing angels. In Revelations 12, 3-4, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, which from scripture we know to be Satan, a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. 
Just a few verses later in in verse 9, it says, The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. Satan is called the day star, and we know Satan to have been a highly regarded angel. The day star is in comparison to the morning star, which is another name given to Jesus. My point is this. Jesus said the mystery of the seven stars is that they are the seven angels. I don't think that he would give the explanation of a metaphor metaphorically. I could be wrong, and there's no way to know for sure until we're in heaven and everything that needs to be revealed will be made clear. When I teach my classes, though, out of Revelations, I try to give the different opinions out there, as well as my own and why I think that. I don't want to teach people only my thoughts because I want them to be able to hear and decide for themselves, to think for themselves. So with that, let's start digging into the letters. The first letter is written to the church of Ephesus. My study Bible says, in regards to the historical context, that Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, a center of land and sea trade. It was one of the most it was one of three of the most influential cities in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The Temple of Artemis was located in the city and was a major industry that manufactured images of goddess. We see this in Acts 19, verses 23 through 28. It says, About that time there there arose a great disturbance about the way. The silversmith, a, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we can see that the worship of idols and the goddesses was a great big part of Ephesus. The letter starts out in Revelations 2.1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here, Jesus is reminding the church of Ephesus who is in charge. God holds the stars in his right hand and walks among the lampstands, which we learned are the churches. What I find interesting in every letter to the seven churches, it starts out addressing who God is and his relationship to them. Each letter is different and is impactful to that specific church. Ephesus needed reminding who held the authority over the church. In verses 2 and 3 of Revelations 2, Jesus goes on to say, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and not grown weary. Paul ministered to the Ephesians in Ephesus for three years, warning them and teaching them that false teachers were to come. In his letter then, he commends them for testing those false teachers. In Ephesians 1.15, he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was to give them encouragement and instructions for for living godly lives. It was to strengthen the church. But then Jesus goes on to say in Revelations 4, in Revelations 1, 4 through 5, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. When he says you have forsaken the love you had at first, and we take that conviction combined, combined with the commending in verse 2, when he says, I know your deeds and your hard work, it paints this picture of a body of believers doing what they know to be right and what they know that they need to be doing, but the motive behind it has been forsaken. They're just going through the motions, if you will. I think there are two primary reasons a church forsakes the love they had at first. The first one's pretty simple, generational churches. In Acts, when Paul is visiting Ephesus, the time is approximately 50 through 53 AD. When Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, that time is approximately 60 AD. So only 10 to 20, 10 years have passed. Seven to 10 years has passed. Paul doesn't really have any rebuking for the Ephesians during that time. But when Revelations is written approximately 95 AD, almost 45 years later, a new generation has come up in the church and the original generation had been dying off. When we first come to Christ, we, we, we truly find him and he radically changes our lives. We are on fire. We act out of his love that is overflowing from us. We make our children go to church, and if we're lucky enough, our children want to go to church with us. They sometimes see it as we do this because we're supposed to, and they don't have the love that we had. And they won't, not unless they have their own intimate interaction with Jesus. So the second generation is sometimes is doing it because they have to or because that's just what we do. And then what happens to the third and fourth generations? So we see that with Ephesus in 95 AD, likely the second generation was leading the church by this time, and the third generation was being raised up. They were still doing what they needed to do. Their deeds were good, but they had lost the love. He is telling them in a very practical way, if you do not repent and find the love you had at first, he will come and remove the lampstand. But honestly, I don't think even God would even have to come to take the lampstand. I think it would naturally occur given enough time. The second reason is expectation. We are doing these tasks because that's what we've always done. Sometimes when we get lost, the only thing we can do is just keep on keeping on. And if we just keep on keeping on, eventually we're not moving out of love, but out of expectations. Sometimes this happens because believers are doing jobs they were once called to do. But now they know that it's time to pass on the baton, but there's no one to pass the baton on to. When church member carries too much for too long, and they're do they are doing it out of expectation and not the love that they once had. This is why it is ever so important to keep everyone involved so as not to lean too heavily on a few individuals. It is also very important to be open to new ideas. New ideas keep it fresh. Think about a marriage. When you do the same thing day in and day out, it gets monotonous, right? You begin going through the day just meeting expectations and not living in love. A church relationship is no different. Doing things a certain way, because that's just the way we've always done it, is a sure sign that we have begun to forsaken our first love. Later in the church of Sardis, we will see Jesus say, wake up, strengthen what remains. And I can't help but feel those words are equally adequate for the church of Ephesus and those of us believers today who, like the Ephesians, were just living like robots. Wake up, reboot, something. If we do not, we will lose our lampstand. To Ephesus, he also says in verse 6, But you do have this in your favor. You hate the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Nicolaitans are not really found in scripture to give us a clue, but history in my study Bible tells us that the Nicolaitans were believers who compromised their faith in order to enjoy some of the sinful practices of Ephesian society. Today we use the term compromised Christians. So they evidently did know right from wrong, but they lacked the passion and the love behind the knowing. Finally, it ends with, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, tree of life, which is that the paradise of God. Since they did in fact love Jesus and they were being his servants, I have no doubt that they didn't realize they had lost their first love. They thought they were still serving God. And I am confident that they longed to be with, with Jesus in paradise. The last thing I want to note here is that it says, whoever has ears, let them hear. It does say to, it doesn't say to any Ephesian that has ears, let them hear. It says whoever, meaning anyone. These letters to the churches were not just to the churches in the areas mentioned. They are to the church at large. They are to the individual churches all over the world today. And I even believe that they are to the individual believers all around the world. Every letter might not be applicable to every believer, but we can find ourselves among these letters. And we can also find we can also let the other letters that might not apply to us in this moment be a warning of pitfalls to avoid. Because in this journey of life, we could go from being in one church to being in a completely different one in a later stage in our walk. The Church of Ephesus, I believe, is a lot closer than some may realize. It has been heavy on my heart, and I want to challenge my friends, wake up and shake it up. Search our hearts and let's sit at the feet of Jesus and fall in love again. Remember how, when, and why we fell in love with Jesus to begin with. We can't go back to what we've always done. We must go back to Jesus. Shake up what might have, been, might have become complacency and ask God for a new flame or to add some lighter fluid to our flame. I know for me, I want to burn deeper. I want to go higher. I want to love Jesus more and more. Like the song, there's no place I'd rather be than here in his love to put a fire in my soul that I cannot contain, that I cannot control. I just want more and more of God. As we go through these church letters, we're going to see some repetition. Some is easy to point out, like whoever has ears, let them hear, or to the one who is victorious. But something else, not really written out per se, will be repeated. Each letter will do one of three things. They will be commended, convicted, or both. So after each episode, I'll ask you that, and then we'll kind of talk about it in the next episode. I'm also going to challenge every, every listener for self-identification and then action from that. I want to encourage you to avoid looking at others and thinking what church do they fit into, because as scripture says, before we point out the splinter in our brother's eyes, we must get the plank out of our own. Self-reflection must come first. So was the church of Ephesus commended, convicted, or both? Where do you see yourself in the church of Ephesus? How might you use this letter to pray? And how might you use this letter to repent? And finally, if you found yourself in the church of Ephesus, what will you do or who will you reach out to to help you get out of this rut? Thank you for listening to this episode of Broken Messenger.